0: When you work with a person or when you look at your own life, it's necessary to have a model of man, at least either explicit or implicit, and psychological theories of various kinds. They have their own uh, models, you know, Freud had the the ego and the superego, and you have various models that are put together. In Christian counseling, we need a model that is coming from the scriptures. And in looking at such a model, first of all we need to look at the makeup of man. And as we do that, there are many models there. Some would uh, opt for a two-part model. It might be material or immaterial. And some would break the immaterial into uh, two parts. We go for the three-part uh, makeup of man that's some sometimes called the trichotomous view of man or tripartite view of man. put that on the screen look at the uh, spirit and the soul and the body and 1 Thessalonians 5:23 says spirit and soul and body and Hebrews 4:12 says the word is quick and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and many even though they might be trichotomous in their view of man could be dichotomous in their Uh, actual living and the way they think about themselves. Many of us, for instance, uh, if you were asked what your soul is, some would find it difficult to explain what the soul is. Then you say, well, does the dog have a soul? And a person, no, a dog doesn't have a soul, he isn't going to heaven. And what they're saying is that the soul really is the spiritual part of man. So you know we might believe that we're spirit, soul, and body, we might think that the soul is a spiritual part because we've never really thought it through. But if we look at the soul as the psychological makeup of man, including the functions of the mind, the emotions, and the will, it's obvious that we have a soul in common with the animals. A dog has a soul. In fact, they have different souls. You take a German shepherd, for instance. He might look identical in their body, and you can pat him on his body, and he... One of them might wag his tail, the other might take off your hand. They have different souls. Now they don't have a spirit. And their souls are not as well developed as ours. They can't really do abstract thinking, but they have a mind. They can learn some things. If you're smarter than your dog is, you might even teach him to go get the paper. And you know that dog does have feelings. He might even blush. You get embarrassed under all that hair. I don't know whether they blush or not. But for instance, you might have a case when your dog just ate your favorite shoe. And you come home and he's hiding under the bed and you don't even know he's eaten your shoe yet. But he's got some feelings. He feels guilty. And he has a will. He can make decisions. You may say, come, and he goes. So they have the same functions, mind, emotions, and will. Now, when the soul is saved, where does the saving take place? And we say our soul is saved our soul is going to heaven, but the saving of the soul really takes place over here in the spirit. Because we have a spiritual birth, not a psychological birth. So the new birth takes place in the spirit. Yes, we understand with our mind, we make a decision of faith to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, But when the Holy Spirit regenerates us It's a spiritual birth So the soul is saved in the spirit Now the filling of the spirit Is a different thing Some of us get the idea When we're filled with the spirit We get a little bit of the Holy Spirit When we're saved And we just gradually get filled up. But the Holy Spirit's a person And you don't get him by bits and pieces Either you have him or you don't If you're a Christian you have him If you're lost you don't So when the Holy Spirit comes in He indwells our spirit, and the spirit himself witnesses with our spirit, but the filling of the spirit takes place in the soul. Because the filling of the spirit is bringing the soul, the personality and the consequent behavior under the control of the spirit, primarily by the renewing of the mind. So What we've said in is that the saving of the soul takes place in the spirit, and the filling of the spirit takes place in the soul. Amen or O me? Now these arrows here indicate that there can be an interaction. We're not so neatly compartmentalized that we hurt one place and not feel it another. Physiologically, we can have a brain tumor or glandular dysfunction thing going on with the body here that can affect us psychologically. A person, for instance, could have a hyperactive uh, thyroid and they could be strung out to to think that they're really nervous. They can't lie down. They can't sleep. It's a glandular problem, a hyperactive thyroid they can have a high or an underactive thyroid and be so listless they can hardly go. It's a physiological thing but it looks like depression. And then psychologically, we talked about earlier about rejection and all the damage that it does and the hurts and failures and trauma that we may experience and that can have an impact in the soul, the psychological makeup here. And some of that can happen all the way back to infancy or we said that a, a child can be affected by the trauma the mother goes through before birth Maybe maybe she's got some tremendous problems, or uh, marriage relationship problems, and that can be passed on to the baby. But if we have these psychological conflicts, and we're born again, and we don't know how the Spirit of God can take away the psychological conflicts, then ultimately it's a spiritual problem. Yeah, there may be mental symptoms, emotional symptoms, behavioral symptoms, But if we're born again and don't know how God can resolve it, if there's a spiritual answer, then ultimately it's a spiritual problem, even though the genesis of those psychological things may go back all the way to childhood or infancy. And then whatever or whoever's in control of the life is going to decide whether that life is going to be successful, whether it's going to be based in the the Spirit or walk after the flesh, what, what is going on there? Well, we're going to look at the spiritual uh, uh, side of this uh, equation first. The word salvation, number one, under the spirit there. We're talking about the new birth. Typically, by the time we explained this stuff first, we would have got... Uh, 30 minutes to an hour of history and most of the time we'd know whether we're dealing with a believer or not And sometimes you're not certain the person's a Christian because they're not certain they have problems with item 2 assurance but we're using the word salvation and limiting that in this case to the new birth experience but number 2 assurance is where a lot of people are they have problems with assurance and they, every time a visiting expert I mean, expert comes to town, they hit the altar and come down and they put on their tennis and run forward and become altar athletes, you know, trying to get assurance of salvation. Now, usually what they say, they misinform the expert you know and they say, I'm doubting my salvation. Now, they may be, but the chances are they're not. They do have a problem with assurance. But the problem may not be doubts, which is an intellectual thing. It may be feelings, which is an emotional thing. So they may never have had assurance. But just imagine now if you had all 15 of those things we discussed earlier, or maybe you could add two or three to the list. If you had all that going, your mind is going one direction and your feelings are going the other. A person like that can know that they're saved and feel lost for a lifetime. See, they do have a problem with assurance, but they're not doubting their salvation, an intellectual thing. Rather, they're feeling unsaved, which is an emotional issue. But the personality winner, otherwise known as the soul winner, takes the scriptures and says, now here's the way of salvation. Now, if you don't believe that, you're calling God a liar. Now they've got a big problem. They feel lost and they've called God a liar too. So they haven't been helped a whole bunch. Do you see the difference between doubting your salvation and feeling unsaved? I shared this with a missionary once. A lady had been on the field for more than 25 years. And she sat down in front of me. And she she sat down and said, I'm doubting my salvation. I looked her square in the eyes and said, you've never doubted your salvation once. And she looked at me like I had two heads and four eyes. She just sure, she had doubted her salvation off and on for more than 30 years. Well, I knew something about her uh, time on the mission field and the way God had used them. She believed the Bible from cover to cover. She even believed the cover, Holy Bible. You know, she was a Baptist. And uh, <laughs> and as I shared with her the difference here between doubting salvation and feeling unsaved, she saw that. She knew she had accepted the Lord. She had talked to more people about the Lord than I did or led more people to the Lord than I talked to about him probably. Now, could you imagine going through the way of salvation with a person like that? You know, I'm dumb and I'm not crazy and that would have been crazy. So I didn't do that but I showed her the difference between doubting salvation and feeling unsafe and she saw it. That didn't change her feelings automatically but at least she saw what the issue was. next day I was lecturing again and the new missionary candidates and some veteran missionaries and she raised her hand and Told her to get up and want to give her testimony, and she told the rest of the missionaries, she, she said, Today I know I'm saved, and I don't care whether I feel saved or not. And she had it straight for the first time in more than 30 years, she knew what the issue was. But a person can have assurance of salvation and not be secure in the relationship with the Lord, and that security it can is bedrock to some spiritual growth too. To know that we're in a relationship with Him is something we can count on and depend on. And of course, there's varying teachings on security, so we won't get into the fine points of that. Number four, acceptance. And here we're not talking about our accepting Christ, but His accepting us. But many believers, since they have been working for acceptance from other people all their lives to try to overcome rejection, they likewise are trying to earn God's acceptance and haven't found out that his acceptance of us is by faith the same as our salvation is by faith. We'll cover the foundation for that as we go on. Now we need to quit preaching and start meddling and get into total commitment or total surrender. One engineer that I challenged with total surrender he saw what it was, and he says, I'm going to have to walk around the block a few times before I can do that. And he walked around the block for, sort of, I think, about six months before he came back. And so he brought up this idea of surrender, and I sidestepped, and we talked about something else, and he brought it up again, and I sidestepped, and about the third time he brought it up, I thought he must be serious, you know, and he totally sold out to the Lord. But there are a lot of misconceptions about what total surrender is. Some have and think they haven't. Others haven't and think they have. For instance, there are people who go to an altar, or their bedroom, or wherever they do business with God, and they tell God, Father, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do. They just surrender to a travelogue. But they may not have surrendered to the Lord. Others surrender completely, lay their life on the altar, everything that they have to Jesus as Lord and sure enough the bottom falls out they cheer up and everything gets worse they have but they think they haven't because everything got worse when they expected everything to get better because they are those who equate a total surrender and a Christ centered life and that can take place simultaneously and should but doesn't necessarily We'll cover that a little bit more in the the next lecture. If we look at that total surrender as a decision of our will, something that we and only we can do, something that even God can't do for us. Because it's our decision to surrender to Him as Lord. We should do that when we're saved. But there are some, like for instance 8 or 9 year old, 10 year old child, they may understand the sin, they want to be saved, they receive Christ and they're born again, but they may not really understand all the ramifications of a total surrender to Jesus as Lord until maybe they're a teenager and they go to a youth camp and they see what that means and they relinquish their life maybe a few years later. see, there are those too sometimes who surrender to preach. I have to be careful on this one because we have a couple of preachers, you know, but there are some people who surrender to preach that may never have totally surrendered to Jesus Christ then this is almost too sacred to talk about, you know, but there are some who surrender to the mission field. But if you talk with enough missionaries, now and then you'll talk to one that it would have taken more surrender to stay home, where people know them. So we need to totally sell out to him, an act of faith, a decision of our will. And that decision, choice to make Jesus absolute Lord and Master of our life, is a decision we make. But we can make that and Christ still not be the center of our life. And if he isn't the center of our life, something else is. Now, that decision is our commission, really, for God to work on our case. And sometimes he works rapidly, and sometimes he works slowly. But lots of times he has to do a bunch of subtractions before he starts doing additions. So when we surrender completely, things may get worse before they get better. And if he isn't the center of our life, something else is, and that might be something for the kid. It might be a ten-speed bike. For the bigger kid, it might be a Mercedes Benz. Or it might be some person, a person who hurt us tremendously. Or it might be we're just living for that person, living for our parents, living for our children, living for the husband. living for them. So some person can be the center in a negative way or a positive way. Or it could be success. It could be dollars. The dollar mark there. But back of all that is really self is running the show. And if self is running the show, we'll make that synonymous with flesh, but if self is running the show, then there could still be things going on. Feelings of inferiority, insecurity, a lot of these we covered in the rejection syndrome. Feeling inferior, insecure. If we feel insecure, we could be jealous of our mates thinking some better looking or richer person is going to come and steal them away. We, we could be uh, totally uh, jealous of them. The jealousy is not the problem. The insecurity is not the problem. It's the self-life that's the issue. Then guilt, there's two kinds of guilt. A guilt is caused by sin, and the only answer to that is confession, repentance the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only answer for real guilt coming from real sin. But we could have imaginary guilt or false guilt coming from things like forgiven sin. For instance, a person might have been involved in some kind of sin before they were saved, and God has forgiven it. There's no guilt there, but if the person is not forgiven himself, he can feel guilty even though there is no guilt because God has resolved it. Then worries, doubts, fears, those fears can become phobias. And for instance, one of the common ones these days is called agoraphobia. And that's where your fears get fears. You know, when your fears get fears, the fears get bigger and bigger, and as fears get bigger and bigger, you have less and less space to live in, and then you can't drive your car, and, and after that, you can't get out of the house, and sometimes they pull the shades and become a prisoner of their own homes. Now, it's dignified by getting the name agoraphobia. And it's a real phenomenon. But see... It's a symptom of a deeper issue The self-life. We had one lady that called in one of our our offices where I was doing a uh, supervisory trip and I happened to take the phone because the counselor was busy and she asked me, do you make house calls? And I told her no. I didn't say particularly not on women alone, but I said, why can't you come in here? Well, she says, I'm too miserable to come in there. I said, you might as well be miserable here, as there. She didn't quite appreciate the humor of that. But we talked a little longer and uh, I found out what church she went to and knew a lady who went to that church. And I told her, I'll send you one of my books sent about this lady. So I sent her this book, Handbook of Happiness. So before we finished, I asked her if we could pray together on the telephone. And I guess she decided I couldn't be all bad if I prayed with her. So we prayed and the lady took the book by and she read that book. The Spirit of God uh, uh, met her, released her. She flung up the shades, opened the doors and two weeks later went to church and sang a duet with her daughter. I never have met the lady. She didn't need to meet me because the Holy Spirit did all the work. But the agoraphobia was gone immediately. And God doesn't always take all those things away uh, quickly like that but it's not at all unusual for it to take place. But you take agoraphobia and you know that. Uh, treated by conditioning, you know, they take, a, maybe the therapist takes a person, they get to stick their toe outside maybe, and, and a month or five later they might even get both feet outside, you know. And then they might, you know, a year later or two they might get to the sidewalk. But, you know, God doesn't have to go through all those uh, things, he just uh, releases a person because he changes who they are from the inside out and does a flat out miracle. Now, if you put all that mess together, you can see how it might cause a tad bit of frustration. After you can't just sit there frustrated, you know, self doesn't handle frustration too well, and back comes the hostility or the anger. Now, what are you going to do with that? Well, you've got about three choices, I see it. If you're brave, you can take it out on someone else. If you're a coward, you can take it out on yourself. If you're smart, you can let God resolve it. See, the brave people give ulcers, and the cowards get them. Because they eat all their anger and stuff and have to keep it inside and it causes depression and anxiety. Other people can find a switch up here and flip it and just flip out and they don't have any problem. Everybody around them does. They can just deny reality totally. Some people I've I've talked to, they've tried to flip out and can't. They just can't find a switch. (laughs) So they just have to stay here and face it and get more depressed. And some people do some fantasy, and that's not too bad to do a little bit of fantasy. You know, you daydream, you might even make some of it come true. But some people stay out so long, they can't find a way back, and they call them schizophrenic. Now, a percentage, I believe it's a small percentage of schizophrenia, is organic. It is truly an organic problem. A chronic schizophrenic, uh, But I believe that's a small percentage. And I think most of those people who are into that kind of behavior, if you can get a An adequate background, you'll find there's enough trauma in their background to cause that without having any organic input, necessarily. And then there are some people who put some paranoia with it. They become paranoid schizophrenic, and other people add some religious things, so they're paranoid schizophrenic with religious overtones. So there's all kinds of mental symptoms. Now, agreeably, some of that is organic. I'm saying I believe that the majority of it is functional, because of all the trauma and things that they've experienced in their, their lifetime, the situations that they're facing that they can't handle, they just, they just break with reality because they can't face it. And I believe most of it is functional. Now, if that kind of stuff stays long enough, then it dumps over into the body, and there can be all kinds of things going on in the body, from head to toe. This is nice because you have different specialists in the medical profession. So it's nice that some people have psychosomatic pains in the head because you've got head doctors and some in the chest because you've got chest doctors and others in the stomach because you've got GI people, you know. And it keeps everybody busy looking at all the different things up and down the torso. <laughs> I was sort of eclectic in my approach to psychosomatic ailments. Sometimes I had a stomach problem and it was just nice to have some, some medication for that. And then I'd have uh, a colon, a spastic colon. They gave me probenthene for that and then pains in the head, you know, just up and down. Well, it's good to have some medical treatment for these somatic ailments. But treating the symptom here is not going to solve things because it's not a physical problem, and the medical professionals tell you that from 60 to 80 percent of the people who go to medical doctors go there for that kind of thing that's psychogenically induced. Now, that's the general practice of the family practice person. Obviously, the person that goes for uh, the specialties wouldn't be quite that great a percentage. I have a friend that's a gastroenterologist, he said at least 90% of all the people he saw had non-objective disease problems. At least 90% coming from this, he said. Well, typically the doctor will treat him. I just saw a lady recently, still seeing her now and then. And she was paying medical bills in 17 different directions at one time. Last fall, prior to Thanksgiving, her medical doctor told her, said, lady, I'll just just level with you. I don't have the foggiest notion of what's going on with your body. They're just going ape. Well, she had all kinds of emotional things going on back there. A decimated childhood and all that was keeping it inside. She had all of her life. And she was able to function fairly normally, because she was able to put all this stuff back here. She even knew where she she was putting it, from a child. She put it back there. So she'd put all these negative, destructive things back there, and she would behave normally. And she got married a second time, and then was was saved, I guess, married a Christian. Been married 15 years or so. And uh, things were going along fairly good, except for all this physiological stuff, you know. Her body was going nuts. she made the mistake of getting the ins and outs of rejection, and she started reading that. And everything she had had so carefully nailed down came loose. And yeah, it all came loose, and she thought she was going crazy. Her husband thought she was going crazy, and she called in, and she sounded crazy. <laughs> so we talked to her a little while, and got her settled down, got her in, and shared with her what God was doing, you know, and how he was releasing her for all this, and that made sense to her. Okay, she would work with that, she could let God do it. And then the Holy Spirit began to uh, schedule sessions with her. The first one was three hours long. I I really don't usually schedule sessions that long. But the Holy Spirit scheduled a three-hour session with her. And he brought something back to her conscious memory that she she didn't even know was there. And he brought it back to her memory. She was able to deal with it. She saw for about three hours. That's over. That's taken care of. And later on, he scheduled another session and brought something else back to her item by item he's been setting her free for that and she said now it's like her brain is becoming alive She's being able to smell things she couldn't smell before and <coughs> and has the parts of her brain she can use that she couldn't use before but the Holy Spirit is releasing her from every bit of that physically she was beat all the time now she can work eight hours and has energy left her body is just about completely rid of all that stuff but we haven't had one breakthrough in the counseling session the counseling room at all the Holy Spirit has done every bit of it away from the office. And that's good. She can't blame it on a counselor, right? Okay, if we can see then that medically a person can be treated for the physical things and that can help those, some. They can be treated in therapy for some of these emotional, mental kinds of things. But what I want you to see is the deceptiveness of that because if therapy results in these things uh, um, becoming better, the depression uh, diminishing or the anxiety diminishing and all of that, As these symptoms get better, this problem always gets worse. Because self is strengthened, it gets stronger. When the symptoms get better, now the person doesn't need God's working in life as badly as they did before. So the therapy, apart from the cross, results, there may be some results in better adjustment, psychologically, but worse adjustment spiritually. So what we want to conclude is that the self-life of the flesh is the real issue. Who's in control of the life Are living out of the wrong identity? As a believer, here we are, is who we are over here in the Spirit. But most of us live many years of our lives out of our souls and bodies and the personality damage, the failures, successes, and what's been done to us. So we live out of this over here, even though our identity is who we are in the Spirit, is the family we're in, in God's family. Self-life, then, is the real issue. So let's look now at what the answer is to that particular problem. If self is the problem, then we want to see what is God's answer to the problem and let him change us from the inside out by releasing us from the self-life and then renewing the mind and transforming the life. But to do that, we need to, to get some terminology straight. We looked at the difference between the soul and the spirit. Now we need to see what is eternal life. You ask the typical man in the street, "What is eternal life?" You might get uh, an answer like, "Well, it's life after death." Well, when does it start? Well, when I die, stupid. It's logical, right? But a lot of Christians, you ask them, "What is eternal life?" And they say, "No, that isn't right. Eternal life starts when I'm saved." Of course, that isn't right. But most of us in this room have probably told someone that eternal life started when we were saved. But I just think how self-centered that would be if I said, you know, folks, eternal life started when Chuck Solomon got saved. Wouldn't that sound a tad bit self-centered? hadn't even been going on until I got saved, right? So everybody before me couldn't have been saved. And see, eternal life didn't start when you were saved, or I was saved, didn't start when anyone was saved, because it didn't start. Eternal life is Christ's life. Since he is God, his life had no beginning and will have no end. John 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. The Lord Jesus Christ took on a human body, John 1:14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, so and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he lived in, in human form for some 33 years, The same life he had always been living, but then he died on the cross for us, in our place, for our sin. He rose again and is still living the same life today. And Hebrews 13.8 says the Lord Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So his life is always the same, eternal life. But when we show up on planet Earth, we're not in his life at all. In fact, our life has nothing to do with them. And this diagonal line, the life of Adam, in which we are born, shows our lineage, our ancestry, and you can see these hash marks represent generations. So you were in your parents before you were born, and they were in their parents before they were born, and so forth. So you can readily see if your grandfather never had any children, And you'd probably never have any children either. Okay, you're still awake. And if Adam and Eve hadn't had any children, we wouldn't have had much to talk about tonight. Every one of us are right back there now. So whatever happened to Adam happened to us. And God told him in the day he sinned, he died. So what did he do? He sinned and died. And what did we do? Sinned and died. So we're all born dead. Spiritually speaking. Because we're born in the life or death of Adam. And since we're in the life of Adam, then his destination is going to be our destination. And Romans 6, 3, uh, 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, because we're born in Adam. Wherefore, whereas by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So his death passed down to us, and we're going to stay dead unless something happens. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So tonight, there's only two kinds of people in this room. Hopefully just one. But there's, at the most two, we're either in Adam's life or we're in Christ's life, one or the other. We're either children of God or children of the devil, according to 1 John 3 and verse 10. Two kinds of people. Children of God and children of the devil. So, if we're in Adam's family, we've never had a spiritual birth, we're born into Christ, then we're still in Adam's family or the children of the devil. If we've had a spiritual birth and we're born again, we're born from above, then we have left the life of Adam and we're born into the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we, by faith, recognize the Holy Spirit shows us that we're in Adam, we're sinners. And we're separated, separated from God and going to be eternally separated from Him. And by faith we receive Christ into our life and are born again. He comes into our life and regenerates our spirit gives us a new spirit. But then we are baptized into Christ. We enter into eternal life. And once we enter into eternal life, we live forever in the past. Huh? Uh, I see some smiling, some shaking their head, some... But now, a while ago, you were very good-natured when I said that Jesus' life had no beginning or end. But what happened to you? When we're saved, we said we enter into eternal life, and we agreed a moment ago that it's a life that has no beginning or no end. So once we're born into Christ, we enter into eternal life. And if I say we live forever and ever and ever and ever as many as five ever, you should agree with me. Yeah, that sounds right. But if I say we live forever, never, 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 never in the past, then you're shaking your head the other direction. But if we're in Christ, we're in Him eternally, or if we're in Him at a point in time, we have to be in Him at any point in time. So we were in Adam here. Our lives went all the way back to Adam, and whatever Adam did, we did. And once we're saved, we switch tracks, and we're in Christ, and whatever happened to Christ happened to us. Because now we're in Christ instead of Adam. So we're in Him eternally. If we're in Him at any point in time, there is no time in eternity. So if we're in Him by new birth, we're in Him eternally. We're in His life. He's in us and we're in Him. And the life that's in us and the life that we're in is the same life that was in Him when He was walking around in Gethsemane. It's the same life that was in Him until He died at Calvary. And once we're baptized into Him, Romans 6.3 says, Know ye not that so many of us as are baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death Francis 2,000 years ago or the same day we were saved we were crucified 2,000 years before but generally speaking we don't get told that we died we're just told that Jesus did that he died for us and rose again and that's enough for us to be saved and miserable. And we know that he's coming back again or we're going to be with him, with him, but in the meantime, it's just a mean time for a lot of Christians. Now, if we can see that we're in him, the day we're saved, we were crucified instantaneously 2,000 years before. We're baptized into him, baptized into his death, and Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead that the Lord the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, that thing we got from Adam, is or has been crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Or Galatians 2.20 says, I am or have been crucified with Christ. So if we're in Christ... And as born-again believers, we are in Christ, we're obviously in Him where He is, and where He is, is at the right hand of the Father. And once we're in Him, we were crucified, buried, received, and, and raised from the dead with Him, and we're too, we too are seated at the right hand of the Father. Ephesians 2, 6 7, And hath raised him, us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. So the moral of the story is you can hang up your hang-ups at the cross and live in heaven on the way to heaven because you're already there. But see, if you don't know you died, you keep trying to live. If you try to live and you're dead, you've got a problem. And a lot of Christians are like chickens with their head cut off. You know, they're running, they are around around, going around in circles. You circles. Know, they don't know they're dead yet. And we need to say you are dead. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3. 3. So God's word concludes that every one of us, as believers, has participated in the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the city at the right hand of the Father. It's true of us, as far as God's concerned, but it may not be true in us. And we need to count it to be true. See, Romans 6.6 6 says, knowing this, that our old man has been past since crucified with Christ, and verse 11 says, count it to be so. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead and unto in the sin, but alive in God." So it's not as believers that we have to die, we already have, we just need to have a funeral. See, anything's dead ought to be buried. But if you don't know you're dead, if you don't know you died, you just know Jesus did, then you're unlikely to count upon it, you're unlikely to count upon resurrection and life within, and if you try to try to live for the Lord, then you're going to live out of all that fleshly junk that we talked about, the damage and all that we've had. We, try, we can try awfully hard and be totally dedicated to live for Him, but we got the power turned off. But when the Holy Spirit can turn the lights on that and show us, and He has to. You could understand all this and teach it, or any of us could, but until the Holy Spirit makes a reality in here that it's no longer I but Christ, it's just theological knowledge. But when the Holy Spirit turns the lights on, and by faith we can take our places to cross and agree with God, we're willing to lose our life. Because that's what it costs. Because in case you haven't found out, death is the only way out. But this is the kind of death that we need to, to have the Holy Spirit make a reality in our lives. And some people who are even suicidal, and they think death is the only way out, but they don't know that as a believer, they can die and stay here. See, the self-life can be dealt with. And the, the hang-ups that we have, the mental things, the emotional things, the Holy Spirit, as He renews our mind, can, can and does transform the life. But it means we have to lose our life if He's going to do the living. And there's where the catch comes in. It's, it's difficult to lose our lives. When you think of losing control and giving up on yourself a lot of people are afraid of failure but you know if you just admit you're a flat out failure you don't have to worry about that anymore because you've just made it official. And in and of ourselves we are failures but if we're willing to give up on ourselves and take our place at the cross what we're doing is getting obedient. Because he says, Reckon yourself to be dead to sin, and alive on the earth. Count it to be so. And by faith, let the Spirit of God put into operation the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ, where it's no longer I, but Christ living. And generally speaking, he has to give us something that we can't handle in our own strength, even asking him to help us if we're going to give up on ourselves and be willing to go to the cross and count that death to be ours. But once we do, there's always resurrection that goes along with it. And the peace and freedom and joy that he brings can only be as he's living in us, through us, instead of us. doesn't violate our personality and say we don't have a mind or whatever, but he renews it so we can live in the peace and power of the Spirit of God. And that's what he wants to do for in and through each and every one of us. Why don't we pray together? It may be that there's someone here who has understood this for the first time and you'd like to pray that kind of prayer and give up on yourself and to declare your death with the Lord Jesus Christ and to let him have full sway and to fill you with his spirit and to renew your mind and transform your life and if so, I'm, I'll give you a chance just to pray silently wherever you, wherever it fits you. And I'll just sort of pray a model, uh, three-part prayer, because there might be someone here who has never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're still an Adam and you've seen that clearly tonight. So you might pray silently just uh, where God has led you, where you know you are, and what you're ready to do. Dear God or Father, tonight I've seen that I'm still an Adam. I've never been born from above. And I see that I'm a sinner. And because I'm a sinner, I'm lost and undone and hell is my destination. But I see through your Spirit from your Word that the Lord Jesus Christ is your Son that He took my place and died for my sins in Calvary and that He was buried and rose from the dead. And believing That and I now confess my sins and repent and turn from my sins and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. I've counted the cost tonight and I do hereby surrender everything that I am and have and ever will be. I take my hands off my life and release every relationship to you, every habit, every goal, my health, my wealth. And everything that means anything, I surrender it all to you. And by faith, I take my place at the cross, believing that when the Lord Jesus was crucified, according to your word, I was crucified with him. When he was buried, I was buried. When he was raised from the dead, I was raised with him. So I deny myself the right to rule and reign in my own life and take up the cross. And believe that I was raised from the dead and seated at your right hand. So I thank you for saving me from my sins and from myself. And from this moment on, I'm trusting you to live your life in me and through me. To do what I can't do and quit what I can't quit and start what I can't start. That you might receive all the glory. So I thank you by faith now for accepting me in the Lord Jesus. For giving me your peace, your freedom, your joy. Your victory and your righteousness is my inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though I don't feel anything, or I don't feel like you will do anything, I know that your word is true, and I'm counting upon your spirit to do what your word says and to make me a new creation in Christ, to set me free from myself, that your resurrection life might be lived out from me and that you might receive all the glory. And I thank you and praise you for victory right now. In Jesus' name, amen.